Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hey everyone, welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. It is Friday and hot off the presses. Literally, this fell into my lap like five minutes before I went on air. I, this is air, right? I, I don't know what the technical term is, but uh, five minutes before I sat down in the chair and decided to, I mean, I was already in the chair, but you know what I mean? Uh, so you may have heard this week, we've been covering the case of the London Public Library in my city where I am right now, uh, deciding to ban Joanna Williams, the uh, tremendous uh, British author and advocate. She's uh, written a number of books on academia, on wokeness, on free speech, and the London Public Library would not allow her to broadcast or uh, to present, to lecture in its theater, its main theater at the downtown branch of the library. They said that the content was likely to violate library policies. Having her there would go against like the workplace harassment and sexual harassment policies and all that. She was going to be there at the invitation of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, whose president, Mark Mercer, I spoke to, I think it was on Monday or uh, Tuesday. Um, but I just found out today that B'nai B'rith Canada, which is a Jewish advocacy group, is calling on the library to cancel a speaker who is allowed to perform in the very same theater. The uh, comedian, uh, supposedly, is uh, goes by the name of um, Amr Zah, or Amer Zar. Uh, he is doing a three-city tour of Canada. He's from the United States. He's uh, doing Montreal today. Uh, tomorrow, he's going to be in London, Ontario, at the Wolf Performance Hall. Now, <laughs> I, again, I like comedy. I like comedians. I've never heard uh, Amer Zar's performance. Uh, so I don't know if this is part of his act or if this is just other stuff he says. Uh, but according to B'nai B'rith, he has glorified the unrepentant terrorist Leila Khaled and has praised the terrorist groups Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, which nothing says comedy, like going on stage and talking about how great Hamas and uh, Hezbollah are. Uh, and then he also has, according to B'nai B'rith, a history of engaging in anti-Semitic rhetoric and support for terrorists. Now, I should say that in this, they have not uh, listed every single thing he said, but I do know that he has praised Leila Khaled. He called her his valentine, which is a, a weird thing to say about uh, terrorists, although, you know, to each their own. Uh, he has, uh, and Khaled, by the way, is a member of a designated terrorist group who participated in the hijacking of TWA Flight 840 in 1969, uh, LL Flight 219 in 1970, that, or sorry, the terrorist group did, uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And Khaled has advocated in favor of using children in terrorist activities. Now, uh, this is all just guilt by association. Let's talk about uh, Mr. Zar himself who has called the Zionist movement white supremacists, says Israel is based on Jewish supremacy, and says Israeli activists should stop, or no, anti-Israel activists should stop condemning anti-Semitism. So uh, this guy is performing tomorrow at the very library that thought Joanna Williams' talk on free speech and sex and gender was just a little too controversial. So you can praise uh, Palestinian terrorists, and that's all a fair game within library policy, but you can't say, you know, I think that uh, biological sex is real. Oh! 
that's just too controversial. You can't do that. No, no, no. Uh, stick to the terrorism, Joanna Williams, and you would have been fine. I mean, rookie mistake on your part. So I'm actually going to, uh, not to the library, because we're not allowed at the library, but I'm going uh, to the uh, Delta Hotel in London this afternoon, where I'm going to be introducing uh, Joanna Williams in her uh, rescheduled talk, her relocated talk uh, this evening on sex, gender, and the limits of free speech. So I might have to give her the advice in person that uh, she should have stuck to condemning Israel, and she would have been fine. Now, uh, I I will say, first and foremost, I do not support uh, what Benabrith is saying here about Amer Zahra to cancel him. I, uh, my belief on free speech is that the more the merrier. And if someone says vile things, you either ignore them or you challenge them. But if you are going to get into the censorship business, which the London Public Library has decided to do, uh, you really have to tell people how you find this guy less problematic than Joanna Williams. Because the problem with censorship is that it's the race to the bottom, is that when you decide to get into that, when you decide to enter the culture war, you ultimately will open yourself up to people saying, well, why not this? Why not this? Why not this? And the easiest way to do it is the way that I believe is morally correct, which is to sit back and say, if you are breaking the law, you are not allowed in here. If you are advocating for breaking the law, you are not allowed in here. I, but but even, even that is not entirely foolproof. I, I once went to, at this very library, a talk delivered by a photographer who takes pictures of abandoned buildings, which I have done myself as well. And he's telling people about you know these pictures he's taken, which he had to break the law to do. He had to trespass to do and, and the library was fine with that now again i'm not making a comparison between these two things i'm just saying that if you talk about the exchange of ideas you have to take a very broad view of free speech and a broad view of discourse which the library has not done and here's an example of them falling victim to their own protocols so i don't believe they will cancel it i i believe they're going to be entirely okay with this but i am you better believe going to ask them how they rationalize this when joanna williams was seen as too controversial Let's shift gears a little bit. Going to be talking in uh, just about seven minutes or so with Greg Hill, who is a Canadian pilot and also the founder uh, or one of the directors of Free to Fly Canada, uh, which has launched a proposed class action lawsuit against Transport Canada over the vaccine mandate in the aviation sector. So we'll talk to Greg about that shortly. But let me just, for a couple of moments here, follow up on my interview Wednesday with People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier, who is also running as the by-election candidate in Portage-Lisker. So I was speaking to Maxime Bernier. We spoke about a number of things, but right out of the gate, he started talking about his policy on abortion, which he had unveiled the morning before the interview. And it is, if you've forgotten or didn't listen to that interview, a policy that basically says if he gets elected, he's going to introduce a bill to ban abortion at 24 weeks, to ban late-term abortion, which, as we discussed, it, is, it does happen in Canada. It's very, very rare. It's not where the majority of abortions take place, but it is a thing. And, and Canada, as many of you may or may not know, is one of just like two or three countries in the world that does not have any legal restriction on abortion whatsoever as far as 
a point in gestation. So that was the context of it. He brought it up and I absolutely was happy talking to him about it because he is a guy who has positioned himself in the past on this issue and others more as a libertarian. And I'm a libertarian. I'm pro-life. Most libertarians are not pro-life. So I, I thought it was a fair question to ask how he's approaching this issue, what the lens through which he views abortion is. And I asked point blank, one of my first questions, are you pro-choice or pro-life? Take a look. Since you bring up the abortion issue, I, I wanted to get to that with you anyway. Uh, let me just first contextualize this for people. Are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy that wants to have a debate, and that's why I'm, I'm tabling that legislation. I said we must do the first step, Andrew. We didn't have any legislation. We are the only country, all the European countries have legislation on abortion, and usually it's uh, illegal to have an abortion the second trimester. In my legislation, I'm saying we must end the late-term abortion. It must be illegal for a woman to have an, uh, an abortion after six months. Yeah, but, I, but again, it was a pretty direct question. Are you pro-life or are you pro-choice, personally? I, I, I would be very direct, Andrew. I won't answer your question. I won't, because the reality is this bill is there, and the goal is to end late-term abortion. And I will answer your question by that answer. I, ideally, it would be great to have a legislation that would ban abortion at the second trimester, like all civilized countries. It's time for Canada to be part of the civilized world. So that exchange ended up taking on a bit of a life of its own on, on Twitter. I had a lot of uh, conservative, uh, like capital C conservatives on Twitter saying that, oh, Maxime Bernier is a grifter. He's not actually uh, pro-life at all. And I had uh, PPC activists that said, oh, you know, it's great that he's done this. And I also had P PPC activists that were turning on me saying that it was a gotcha question. It was unfair. And I was being oversimplistic. One of them was Randy Hillier, who used to be a, a tremendously relevant and intelligent figure in, in politics, who unfortunately now is neither. But uh, Randy Hillier was coming after me saying that I was, you know, asking like I was, a, it was a mainstream media question. It was a, it was a hack, a hatch, or what was it? A hatchet job, a hack job, whatever it was. And the thing about Randy Hillier is that I was like, okay, I'm going to get in on this and, and respond to it. And I, I said, you know, asking if you're pro-life or pro-choice should not be a difficult question for people. And I, I think you have to be tremendously insecure about your preferred candidate to think that that is an unfair question. Maxime Bernier answered it. He said, listen, I'm not going to give you a, an answer to that, and here's why. And you can agree or disagree with what he said. Uh, Maxime did not seem to take issue with the question as much as a lot of his supporters did. But I, there still has been a, a little bit of criticism on this. So I, I wanted to approach with you how I asked that question and why I asked that question. Because uh, you can say that an absolute uh, free-for-all on abortion, which is what we have in Canada now, is wrong. You can also say that an absolute 100% prohibition on abortion, uh, you know, even the morning after pill is uh, not allowed, is also wrong. You can say that you believe that the correct answer is somewhere in between there. And I think that's a, a completely legitimate approach. Even a lot of pro-life advocates I know would say, yeah, okay, birth control is fine and, and the morning after pill is fine. They're more concerned about when a, wh I, again, I don't want to get into the science of it, but because I'm going to say like the wrong word and I'll just, it'll be like a viral moment 
moment for all the wrong reasons, but they focus on when it is a life. And the reason I ask, are you pro-choice or pro-life is not because I, I'm asking, do you believe in one extreme or the other? I'm asking what the lens through which you view that issue is. How do you approach this su subject? Do you uh, view it as a child welfare issue, which is what people who are pro-life do? Or do you view it as a women's rights bodily autonomy issue, which is what pro-choice activists do? Um, and I agree. I mean, the pro-life, pro-choice dichotomy is one that is not necessarily prescriptive. You can be pro-life who believes that an incremental approach is important. You can be pro-choice who believes that late-term abortion is terrible. But it was a completely fair question, and I stand by it. And a lot of the people that think it's a god a question or people that are just so partisan that they think any challenging question is some affront against the person to whom it's being asked. I, I've, I've talked to Pierre Polyev about abortion and I shared his answer and I've criticized his answer and we can dig that clip up and I should say next week I'm going to be talking to the conservative candidate Brandon Leslie and we'll talk about again some of the other themes of the race and we will talk about this issue as well. I think he's on the show on Wednesday if I'm not mistaken or but the but again i mean next week the he is going to be on brandon leslie the conservative candidate so all of that is to say it's a very reasonable question to ask when a politician themselves brings up the abortion issue which maxime bernier did in that interview and has in the campaign so uh, if you don't like it i mean tough luck i'm not really apologizing for it or, or doing anything of the sort but I, I think that it is important that we understand that how people approach issues is just as important, if not more important, than where they land on with those specific issues. And look, I, there, I understand the allure of what the PPC is promising here, because if you are pro-life, you have for years been told by capital C conservative politicians who identify as pro-life that this is just an untouchable issue that we shouldn't go anywhere near. You have Andrew Scheer in 2019 saying, yes, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And, and if you are pro-life and you do believe this is a child welfare issue, it's a tough one to sort of understand because you're like, well, hang on, if you think this is a child that is at stake, why wouldn't you do so? Why are you doing nothing about it? That, like, how do you square those two things? So political opportunism is a big part of the problem when you do this. And I, I think that for someone like Maxime Bernier, who I think from his answer, you can tell is a pro-choice person generally, he is offering people more than a lot of pro-life politicians had. So that's a calculation that individual voters can make. But I think understanding are you coming to this because you're pro-life? Are you coming to this because you're pro-choice, but you think this is a reasonable compromise position? I think was fair ball. He gave his answer, whether you like it or not, is up to you. Uh, speaking of bodily autonomy, I want to turn our attention to this proposed class action that's been filed against the federal government, specifically Transport Canada. And it is a proposed class action on the vaccine mandate for people in the aviation sector specifically, which was uh, technically done under different orders than the general uh, federally regulated workplace vaccine mandate. But this was an order that meant flight attendants, pilots, other people working in this industry would be terminated, would be suspended, would in some cases be coerced into early retirement. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of moments here. But there is a proposed class action that's been filed on behalf of Free to Fly Canada. There are three representative plaintiffs, Greg Hill, Brent Warren, and Tanya Lewis. But uh, ultimately, anyone who is affected by this, if the class action is approved and certified, 
certified uh, will be a beneficiary of this. So basically unvaccinated employees in Canada's aviation sector. I want to welcome to the show from Free to Fly Canada, Greg Hill, who is a pilot with a major Canadian airline and joins me now. Greg, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much to be, uh, appreciate being here, Andrew. Thanks so much. Now, I should say, I actually happened to meet you on a flight when you were working and you got me safely to my destination, which I uh, appreciated. So in your case, you've been able to go back to work, but for some of your colleagues, that wasn't the case, as I understand it. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. I think for all of us, the last uh, two or three years have almost disappeared into a somewhat dark gray continuum. So it's it's hard to remember exactly what happened when, but Certainly those of us that were out of work for an extended period of time remember that well. And as you point out, uh, there are some of my colleagues uh, who are, are not back to work. When, when the mandate was suspended last June, the majority did go back to work slowly over the next uh, month or two, generally speaking. But there, there are a group of employees uh, at WestJet, for one thing, um, that refused to sign a, a very uh, egregious piece of uh, mem- a memorandum of understanding, essentially, agreeing, uh, which required them essentially to uh, go against their conscience and say, well, WestJet did uh, respect my charter rights, WestJet did uh, respect human rights, uh, sign this document, and then you can have your job back. And to their credit, uh, as far as I know, to to a single man and woman, uh, they refused to do so because these are people of principle uh, that we're not going to compromise uh, based on conscience. So I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, there does seem to be a pervasive attitude that we're past this, that we've moved on. I was just speaking to a friend of mine that's in healthcare. Uh, we've got a couple in my local community uh, and people think they've all gone back to work. Well, they haven't. There's a, there's a cabal amongst the hospitals, uh, certainly in the province of Ontario, uh, that is not bringing them back to the detriment of the population as a whole who, uh, who, who are short of doctors and nurses and other staff in hospitals who they simply have not brought back. So it's a great thing to bring up because it's not well understood. Let's talk about what the actual, we don't need to get into the legal weeds, but but what is the, the, the real objection here? I mean, as I understand it, uh, the, the case really hinges on that the government was forcing violation of the contracts that, that you and, and your colleagues had. And I mean, obviously, we know that there are, uh, in some cases, pretty stringent protections uh, through collective bargaining that have been fought. And then the government just comes in with this mandate that uh, trumps that. Right. Well, I mean, the primary strategy uh, and the angle here and, and listen, we've, we've sat back uh, and watched the, I'll call it challenging judicial landscape in this country for, <laughs> uh, for the past uh, year or so. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, we're certainly hopeful to our credit, uh, and that isn't to disparage uh, anyone who's made a, a viable effort to make headway legally, but it's enabled us to, to get some understanding of where the courts uh, are at right now. And it is a challenging environment. And so out of that, uh, this is, is what we put forward. And what you're alluding to is, is what's called inducement, that we, uh, as you said, we've, we've fought hard uh, as employees to, uh, to have a standing with our, our companies and, and an agreement. Uh, and, and listen, at the end of the day, we want the success of the airline industry. We want people to be traveling, not staying in their 15-minute cities or otherwise. We want them moving about the world uh, freely as, uh, as free citizens. So, so ultimately, that's what we want and, and doing our part to get people safely as I did with you on that uh, one day, and it was a pleasure to, to, to chat with you briefly. Uh, we have these agreements. Well, this interim order uh, came in and, um, and it, uh, it induced a, a breach of that, of that contract. I mean, just as an example, 
and it's it's been a beef uh, at least of mine personally and i'm sure with a bunch of my other colleagues is is it was uh, stated that we were on a leave of absence well i mean there's no such thing in in, in any contract i know of an involuntary leave of absence mm-hmm. um the aviation industry is prone to all sorts of ups and ups and downs and trends with the economy or with things like asinine uh, COVID policy, for instance, right? So you've got circumstances where uh, former military guys, let's say, will say, hey, uh, there isn't a lot of work for me here right now, or I may be um, furloughed. So I'm going to go back to the military. I'll take a leave of absence and I'll go back for two or three years. But there's nothing contractually that says uh, you will involuntarily be put uh, on a leave of absence. So that's just just one example well we've had people suspended uh, which is a better word for that it's not actually a leave of absence uh, or uh, outright terminated uh, so that's that's uh, the simplistic uh, angle and again i'm i fly airplanes uh, i'm not an expert uh, in the law but that's uh, kind of a thirty-five thousand foot view of uh, of what we're looking at here Let's talk about a little bit here where the liability lies. I I know the proposed suit is against Transport Canada, who issued the mandate. But in your view, were the airlines themselves, you know, witting participants in this or were they victims of this? Because I know when it came to the vaccine mandate for passengers, for example, you know, it's Air Canada or WestJet flight attendants that are, you know, demanding you hand over your proof of vaccination. But it's not their fault. They're enforcing a rule that is coming from a government mandate. When, When this came up, did the airline push back against the government at all or was their view that you know what anything that lets us you know keep moving on and get the bailout money is is fine with us we're just going to go along with it yeah i mean you're touching on on a number of pieces that we've been fairly vocal about over the past couple years i guess you know as much as i'll say um they were they were pretty enthusiastic um in in employing these uh, there once we were past that october 29th deadline when this interim order came out it was fairly common if you were speaking with a manager and we pushed back hard. I mean, individually, a lot of my courageous colleagues uh, were quite vocal. And of course, the, the, the management was, was prone to typically say, hey, uh, you know, what do you want us to do? Uh, we, we've got to run an airline. We're just uh, we're just uh, we're doing what we need to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's the government's the government's fault. And there's certainly obviously this is our point that uh, it, it was it was it was pushed and forced down this road. But even before this, uh, this came out, there was all sorts of things happening uh, within the industry that, that seemed fairly enthusiastic. And at the end of the day, I mean, they want to make money. Um, so it's understandable, but we can't live in a society where we just take these, uh, these uh, God-given rights and, and toss them out the window. And then uh, the point being on this end of it, uh, you know, if you want to use an analogy, even with your home life, if somebody comes into your home, a gr- group of people and ransacks it and runs down the road with your possessions, you're not typically prone to just sit in your house and shrug and say, well, at least I still have the four walls to sit within. And that's essentially what's happened. Uh, the majority of people have gone back to work, but there's been there's been no willingness uh, to to replace the lost income. And it's not just lost income. Uh, people, uh, there's intangibles here as well. People lost their marriages, they lost their homes, uh, they lost relationships, and all sorts of things uh, directly related to the loss of uh, loss of employment. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think oftentimes people 
who are disconnected from the situation would say, okay, yeah, they were suspended for a bit. They got their jobs back. Everyone move on. But, but it is very difficult to move on when uh, you're one of the people that has just gone through what, what you've described there, which I, I don't think is difficult to imagine. And you also look at the, the way that it would breed some fairly nasty thinking among colleagues when, you know, all of a sudden you've been outed in, in you know, for this one thing, and then you go back and your colleagues probably know why you were gone. And uh, there might be some, some discontent there. And, and also just people that were forced out of the industry, which I heard a lot of, you know, people that mm-hmm. own businesses that were shut down that just decided, okay, maybe there's no point and I'm going to go and get a, a job that's not fulfilling, but, you know, I could work it. I mean, I know that uh, when I looked at some of the comments that have been made by Free to Fly, people that were, wouldn't have retired, they weren't ready to retire, yeah. they didn't want to retire, right. but it was just, all right, well, maybe I have a few years left. This is something I'm going to do now. That's not a win. That, that's not a win. They're still yeah. victims of this. No, and I appreciate you bringing that up. It's essentially retirement under duress. And I you know, just put top of my mind, there's like two faces in, in my, my brain of guys that I have enormous respect for um, that refused to concede. And, and that's the road they went down. And they made it clear they weren't retiring because it was, it was time to uh, hang up the headset uh, and, and move, move into retirement. It was done because of, uh, because of, of, of the, uh, the mandate. So, yeah. you know, as relates to, uh, to, to the work environment, I, I will say for the vast majority um, of my colleagues, and, and the, the flight tech's a fascinating uh, place. You're essentially locked in a closet with somebody for hours and hours at a time, right? Uh, so the conversation can be simulating and it's typically not terribly heated, but I will say when it does kind of come up and it inevitably does, people talk about what you were doing last summer. And it was like, well, uh, working in a little manufacturing plant or whatever, and you'll have a conversation. The majority are incredibly supportive uh, Hmm. up to and often, including saying, I got so much respect for you and I did not want to go down this road. And I wish I would have held out myself. Uh, there's the odd person that uh, typically just it's awkward silence for a few seconds and you talk about <laughs> something else, right? Because you, you're not going to get into it. You get another five hours before you get to Seattle or something. Right. Um, but for the most part, uh, certainly the, uh, the visceral feeling as we, as we, what, you know, ended up uh, later last year was don't come near me with a booster uh, amongst the majority of my colleagues. Yeah, and I think that was the turning point for a lot of Canadians when there was that one press conference. I, I can't remember when it was. It was around the time they had suspended the uh, vaccine mandate, the the broad sort of array of them. And, and you know, the health minister, uh, Duclos, had said something along the lines of, you know, it's just a temporary suspension. And then there was another press conference where they talked about reevaluating their definition of what it meant to be fully vaccinated and, and re- reconstituting that around being up to date. And there were a mm-hmm. lot of people that got their two doses, maybe even they got their third dose that were being told by the government that, you know, there could come a time where you're unvaccinated because we've just changed what it means. And I think a lot of people that were kind of on the cusp, like you've just talked about, really did draw a line in the sand there or would have had the government mm-hmm. really gone ahead with that and said, no, 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 now you need a booster every three months to be considered fully vaccinated. Because at that point, you are no longer your own individual insofar as you ever were. You are no longer making right. your own choices. If your job is contingent on renewing your vaccination status every three, four, six months. And, and I think mm-hmm. there was a fear among a lot of people that that's where we were headed. Well, and I would I, I remember that distinctly because uh, I was actually working in a manufacturing plant at the time. And I took a little break from uh, gluing pieces together to, to watch that press conference. Uh, and I remember thinking, 
Wow. Uh, and I would almost suggest it was somewhat of a trial balloon uh, by mm -hmm. the government to see what kind of uh, what kind of feedback they were going to get. And, and, and we are living in a little bit of a Truman show, I would say here when it comes to the state as a whole. And uh, and even with with these mandates themselves, if, if you look at us here in the aviation sector up in Canada versus in the states, the, the troubling reality, and I think this is something everybody needs to take uh, as a takeaway is collective action uh, matters when it comes to standing up when it, it matters of conscience because at the end of the day it was somewhat of a cost benefits analysis and sadly once we got right down to the wire in that date there, it was a fairly small crowd of people across all sorts of industries that were willing to say i'll give up my job i'll give up my home i'll give up whatever it takes because i'm, I'm afraid of the right things down the road right i i Jordan Peterson talks about that. It's not necessarily courage. It's understanding the bigger picture. Um, it, whereas in the States, there was a couple airlines where there was enough guys and gals that, and I'm not talking 40, 50%. It's just not a big number. I don't know what it is. Let's say it's 10 or 15%. You said, don't come near me with that thing or I'm not flying your airplane. And the, the airline did a cost benefits analysis and thought the airplanes aren't going to move and it's going to fall apart in a hurry. Uh, and so as we go forward, uh, this, this COVID was a, was a season. I'd say we've got very deep seasons of challenge coming up. You speak to them all the time, um, Andrew. And unless people are willing to stand up and the biggest of all of my view, be willing to give things up, give up comfort, give up convenience, give up status quo, give up your reputation. Because a lot of us uh, conceded based on what people were going to say about us. And that's a pretty low threshold. But unless we're willing to really do that, uh, we're in for a real, real um, deepening uh, season of challenge ahead. And I think that's got to be our takeaway as citizens of this uh, once great nation. I'm being told by my producer that the longer you talk, the more our viewership just keeps going up. So what you're saying is is resonating with people. And if you're watching live, do share it. And I think what you mentioned there, Greg, is incredibly important in that a lot of the problems that I saw from well with the COVID restrictions of which there were many is that they were inherently meant to divide and isolate people so that mm -hmm. they couldn't do exactly what you just described I mean when it was literally illegal to go and have dinner with a neighbor or a friend or a family member you can't actually sit around a table and talk about why this isn't right and talk about what you're going to do right. and, and plan and plot and scheme and all of these things and I mean that in, a, in more of a joking way than isolation I right yeah, exactly. And, and and I think the same thing here. I mean, you have pilots and flight attendants and other people in the sector that have very strong unions that we were talking about earlier. Um, and all of a sudden, that, that union is not really standing up in the way that it could. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was really, uh, they essentially left the room. <laughs> Let's mm -hmm. be honest. I mean, that's that's what happened. Uh, I, I, we, we've got all sorts of things happening in aviation right now. We see WestJet um, going out on strike and, and in some of the unions across the country, like the very next morning I'm talking within eight hours, had a one or two page statement to all of their thousands of members about how we need to stand in solidarity. And it's a little bit of a thorn in the side of, of, uh, of guys and gals who were about to be terminated and termination for a union. It's, it's like thou shalt never go there. I mean, I can give stories of, of pilots that have done pretty rough things over the past 10 or 20 years and the union fought hard to keep them employed. And you've got people for a matter of conscience that's just said, I'm not going to go down this road, not because of myself, but honestly, because I love my kids and my grandkids. And I don't want them to live in a world where the state can do this to us as, as citizens. Uh, and, and the unions were silent. 
They said nothing. And I'm not talking for a couple days or weeks. I'm talking, we were going to our union saying, uh, you haven't mentioned us for six months, nine months, we've been out of work and we're going to be terminated in a month. Could you maybe just mention that we are here in the background? Um, it's a little bit hard to, to, to swallow. And I will say, uh, I'm not saying this out of, out of resentment or bitterness, because I think that's a very dark place that, that we can go as well. And you see that in, in, in uh, I would say, the like-minded community a little bit. I think we've got we've to take a deep breath, keep our wits about us, be the adults in the room, uh, see ourselves as leaders uh, across the nation. Uh, what we desperately need right now are men and women of principle who are, who are willing to lead this country back to where it needs to get. And the way to do that, again, is to count the cost to say, I'm willing to give things up for the next generation and the generation after that. Because if we don't, again, uh, we're, we're in for a dark season here. Seeing the airplane behind you, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I do have to ask, why did you even want to go back? I mean, after what happened to you, which I, I imagine would feel like a tremendous affront to you as an individual that, you know, your, your contributions, your service, your identity didn't matter. Why did you want to go back into that world after? Um, actually, it's funny that picture. I, I was sitting more like this the other day and I thought that my head's in the clouds. I hadn't really thought of that. I typically sit here when I do interviews, <laughs> but my daughter painted that for me. It's, uh, it's a favorite, but, um, that's a good question, Andrew. It's not one I get asked normally. So I, you know, I gotta, I gotta take a, a moment. I, I, I wrestled with it. Um, I, I wrestled with it a fair bit. I, I guess on some level we fought hard and, and, and I do if I'm going to fight for something, I try to think about it fairly carefully. And so if I'm fighting for my job back, it's, it's a, a little bit disingenuous when you get the opportunity to say, no, I'd rather, uh, I'd rather do other things. Um, the vast majority of us got into aviation because for me, when I was 13 years old, my father was a military man. I flew around in a C-130, which I ended up flying myself in the military. And I love it. We love the job. Um, it's, it's different every day. It's challenging. You know, insert all of the cliches that you've probably heard before. I don't want to go on and on about it, but it, it's a fantastic job. Um, it affords all, all sorts of uh, perks and otherwise. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we did fight to, to, to get our jobs back. Um, the, the job affords uh, other opportunities. And then part of that is what I'm doing here with you now is advocating for things that, that I'm passionate about. Um, and so uh, that's that's the long and short of it is uh, is we fought we fought long and hard to get here. Uh, I put in a full career in the military before I got to this job. And, and the other blunt, um, honest piece is aviation, unless you've got some other skill. I didn't work, you know, to go to dental school on the side or anything else. It doesn't transpose terribly well to other employment. So I found myself at three o'clock in the morning uh, shoveling parking lots and things during my my year out of work. Um so some of it's just the practicalities of, uh, of getting back to a, to a good job that, uh, that we love. Uh, but it, it was difficult. Um, but I would say that the moments that I have run across uh, managers, that I have run across other union members, I, I've, been, I've been meticulous, I believe, in being careful with what I say, with being professional and trying to be kind in the way I say it. So I have no shame when I come across these people. I wasn't rude or personally disparaging. But there's times when I, I sense a difficulty uh, on their part individually with, with our encounters, because I, some of the things that have been written and said, I, I just scratch my head and I think, yeah, man, you're a smart guy. Uh, but you've kind of hung up your conscience along with common sense in, in doing this, but people will do strange things sometimes for, uh, for a sizable paycheck. 
Uh, and then that's part of the problem is the government has got us by the paycheck or got many of us by the paycheck. Mm-hmm. And we've got to learn, um, A, not to get ourselves in so deep that we, we run out of choices um, and, and to create a life around us where we are able to make some independent choices going forward. And I know a lot of people are doing that as well. Well, I appreciate your your service and also appreciate your taking a stand in in this way and and joining us today. I've got a fair bit of travel coming up this summer for work, so I'm sure I'll I'll see you in the skies again. I I certainly hope to. But uh, Greg Hill from Free to Fly Canada, thank you so much, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity, Andrew. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was actually quite fun because originally sometimes I, I'm not famous by any stretch, like just not at all. But every now and then you, someone will just give me like a weird look and I'm like, oh, and do they recognize me? And it's no, it's a homeless guy that wanted my wallet or something. Uh, but then sometimes someone looks at you and then uh, later on they come up. And, and that was the thing. When I got on the plane, Greg uh, was standing there and sort of eyed me in a weird way and I carried on. And then on the way back, he, he was like very, very sly. He's like, thank you for what you do. And then we've, uh, of course, Fonded a bit since then, so it was very nice to uh, chat with him. In uh, now, now I was in his wheelhouse. Now he's in uh, my wheelhouse. So uh, the two cancel each other out. It is Friday. We always try to end things with a little bit of routine here. It is time for fake news Friday. Yes, Fake News Friday going through the whirlpools of wackiness, the hurricanes of hilarity, and all the other weird stuff that we can debunk and try to make sense of. This one is an Alberta politics-themed Fake News Friday because yesterday the Ethics Commissioner in Alberta exonerated Danielle Smith Smith on the chief complaint made by CBC, which is that uh, she or someone in her office had sent an email to Crown prosecutors uh, trying to interfere in the prosecution of Arthur Pulowski. Now, uh, Premier Danielle Smith in her office did an investigation. Previously, they said, listen, there was no email. We found no record of this. CBC doubled down. And now we have the ethics commissioner coming out and saying, yeah, uh, there was actually no email. The, the big ethics commissioner found no evidence of this. Uh, now, if you look interestingly enough at the headlines on this, uh, there's a lot of support for the idea that Danielle Smith was exonerated on the chief accusation. But the CBC headline, Danielle Smith breached conflicts of interest act, says ethics commissioner. So they go way, 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 way down to the report and find that uh, a conversation that Danielle Smith had with her justice minister was inappropriate and they find that to be the headline there so talk about uh, when two people can look at the same thing and draw wildly different conclusions the reality is that uh, she was cleared on the most significant counts Uh, they did find her uh, to have run afoul of a minor aspect of this but odd, the media focuses more on that one than the bigger picture here. And, and Danielle Smith has taken it on the chin. She said, look, I, I'd actually welcome more direction and clarity on that so this doesn't happen. Because what she was found guilty of doing was asking her justice minister if something was legally possible. Wait, like, Isn't that what you're supposed to lean on your justice minister for when you are not a lawyer and they are a lawyer and you have a legal opinion that's been given to you that you want to say, hey, uh, just let me know what you think about that. So I, I found it baffling that the commissioner found that, but ultimately uh, CBC has been the one who really has to be held accountable here and so far has not recanted or retracted anything. 
And just because we like to end things on a bit of a lighter note as well, uh, we go to a piece in The Conversation. Now, it okay, let me just, before we put it up on the screen here, uh, preface this by saying, uh, I am good at many things. Gardening is not one of them. I am not good at gardening. I don't know about gardening. I kind of, like, if it were me, I would look out and see the dandelions and be like, oh, wow, we have yellow flowers. That's great. Let's plant more of them. Uh, even though you don't want to plant uh, dandelions and don't even need to. Uh, like, I had this with my wife the other day where I saw something. I was like, oh, that looks nice. What is that out there? And she says, those are weeds. And I said, oh, okay, well, they're nice looking weeds, but I'm not a gardener. Uh, it's not one of these things that I focus on. I, as long as the, what is it? Sean says, are those the fun blowy flowers? Oh, the, yeah, dandelion. In the fall, you can blow them and spread the spores everywhere so there are more dandelions. Tell your kids. It's a way to plant a nice yellow garden. <laughs> Don't tell your kids that, please. Kids, your parents are going to kill me, so I hope you're not listening uh, to that part anyway. Um, but here we go. I might actually be woke because I do not garden. Now we go to the conversation. Decolonize your garden. This weekend, dig into the complicated roots of gardening. Uh, this is a piece by uh, Ateka Kaki and Venita Srivastava who say the May long weekend is the unofficial start of summer and for those of you with home gardens or access to community space it's time to dust off the gardening tools visit the garden center however the practice of gardening is deeply tied to colonialism from the formation of botany as a scientist, science to the spread of seeds, species, and knowledge. So uh, the fact that tulips have been the subject of colonial conquest, the fact that they were hybridized and commodified and have coveted status, this is all just colonialism. You can't like your tulips. The fact that botanical gardens were laboratories and scientific object. This is an exact line. Scientific objectivity asserted a Eurocentric point of view, disrupting and displacing indigenous knowledge and ecological practices. So if you learn something scientifically, uh, you're colonial because you're not just uh, learning it via indigenous oral tradition. Uh, Sean says uh, tulips are the OG Bitcoin. Yeah, if you haven't uh, familiarized yourself with tulip mania, there was a bit of a bubble in uh, the Netherlands and around the world, uh, what was it, like 500 years ago on tulips. But uh, the Bitcoin active, I think Bitcoin has actually held its uh, staying power a little bit more. Like Pierre Polyev didn't come out and say that Canada will become the tulip capital of the world. So uh, Pierre Polyev needs to come out with his tulip platform. Uh, no, Bitcoin's holding a little bit. Uh, there were no tulip ETFs. Uh, there were no tulip vending machines and uh, tulip uh, ATMs and all that. So uh, get out of here with your Bitcoins or the or tulips. Tulips are the OG Bitcoin. Uh, in any way, um, you are all colonial white supremacist racists if you have gardens. Sorry to tell you. That does it for us. Andrew Lawton Show continues next week on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.